Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Our great Heavenly Father, we we give you thanks that you're a God who speaks. Uh, Father, please still our hearts and our minds uh, this morning. Uh, We want to see how great Jesus is. Uh, His wonder, his glory, his greatness, his compassion, his his great love for us. Father, help us to honour him, uh, to love him more, to to follow him, to live our lives under him uh, as a result of what we hear this morning. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to begin this morning by talking about seats or chairs. Uh, And I want you to think about the seats or the chairs that are in your house. Uh, Is there a special seat in your house? Is there a special chair? And is that chair reserved for someone? Um, You know that when you go into someone's house, it's kind of polite to ask, where can I sit? (laughs) Uh, You don't want to sit in that chair, right? You don't want to sit in the chair that's reserved for maybe the head of the house. Maybe that was the case uh, for you growing up, or maybe it's still the case. Uh, Maybe you live on your own, you can have any chair you want. That's okay. Um, But chairs are funny things, aren't they? They're just a chair, but they mean something. They point to something. They often point to authority. Um, They can also be a lot of fun. Uh, I remember... Before I married Natalie, visiting Natalie, she was, uh, had two other flatmates, so three girls in the same house, and they used to make a huge deal of birthdays, and I could never live up to this, um, but they'd have a special chair, and uh, each of them, when there was their birthday, would sit on that chair, they'd be served, they'd have all the servants, they were the queen, tiara on their head, for the day, that was their tradition. Well, it can be a lot of fun, but... Let me tell you about a place that takes throne chairs, seats of authority, really, really seriously. It's government. Uh, Even local government, even Wollongong Council. Um, Inside the council chambers, I don't know whether you've ever been deep within the council chambers, uh, there's there's hundreds of seats in the council, right? But there are seats and there are seats. Uh, Deep within the council chambers, there's a room for the councillors. There's 12 councillors. Uh, four councillors from each of the three wards, and there's a seat, a special seat for each of the councillor, each of the councillors, and then there's that big-backed, high-backed leather chair for who? For the Lord Mayor. They call they call them the Lord Mayor. Right? Uh, now I know a guy who thought it would be funny to go and sit in the Lord Mayor's chair. There's a picture of him. Uh, he's funny because he works for council, a different council, uh, but in fact, uh, he doesn't even work in the office. Uh, he doesn't uh, even, he has one of the smallest desks in council. In fact, he reckons, his wife reckons that he doesn't even need a desk to do his job. Uh, but just before his retirement, he thought he'd sneak up to the council chambers, he'd step into that chair and, and see what it would be like to be king for one day. So he sneaks up, gets someone to take a snap of him. He retires the next day, just before he gets the sack. Now, all of those chairs are tiny chairs, symbols of chairs. Who is it that has the highest, biggest chair of all? It's God, isn't it? 
God is on the chair, the, the, the chair of authority for the universe. He is the king. He's the one with all authority and power. He's, he's the one you want on the king, on, on the chair. He's the gracious, compassionate God of perfect justice and holiness. You wouldn't want anyone else on the chair of all chairs. In fact, what is sin? Isn't sin us dethroning God, us trying to take God off his chair and put ourselves on the chair? Uh, It's us saying, actually, God, I'll determine what's right and wrong. I'll decide the purpose of my life. Now, what I want you to see this morning, as as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, there is one entitled to sit on God's chair. What What an incredible privilege. It's God's son, the Messiah, the anointed king. And what Matthew keeps doing for us, he keeps showing us that this person entitled to sit on the chair of authority is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the King. And so, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but as you read through Matthew's biography of Jesus' life, you keep seeing Jesus doing things that are reserved for God. Uh, You keep seeing Jesus do extraordinary things, not just for entertainment purposes, not just as party tricks, but to get us to see only God can do that. In fact, that reminds me of God. And many took offence at Jesus because that's what he was doing. But think about it for a moment. What does Jesus do? He forgives sins. That's God's job. Uh, He calms storms with a word. He has power over creation. That's God's job. He speaks with authority. Uh, You say this, but I say this. The Old Testament law says this, but I say this. He speaks words of power to heal people, to raise people from the dead. Evil spirits are afraid of Jesus. And what have we come to today? We've come to two extraordinary miracles in Matthew chapter 14. And two very popular, very well-known miracles of Jesus. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and Jesus walks on the water. And again, what we're going to see is who Jesus is. Here is the one who rightly sits on God's throne chair. Here's the one that we're meant to glory in, delight in, joyfully give our lives to. Here is the king that we'll be truly satisfied in. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, what we're going to see this morning, here is your king. Wonderful, beautiful, gracious, compassionate. Now, if you're not quite there yet, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're still working these things out, still tussling through, great to have you with us. Here is your king as well. Here, you know, everyone lives for someone or something. We're actually, that's who we're made, we're made to worship. But we just keep looking to the wrong kings. Here's the one who won't let you down. Here's the one you're designed for. And so I want to encourage you this morning to come to him and live for him. Here's where life is to be found. Well, open up with me, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, set your eyes down on verse 13. Uh, we're going to camp in the, the feeding of the 5,000 this morning. And there's some, there's some beautiful moments here I want you to see. 
The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is a good and compassionate host. Jesus is a good and a compassionate host. Uh, We touched on this last week, if you were with us, but can you see there is a massive contrast going on between King Jesus and King Herod uh, in the previous passage? Uh, There's a massive contrast between Herod's feast and Jesus' very simple, satisfying meal. Uh, Jesus, sorry, Herod's feast is one of self-indulgence, if you remember from last week, immorality, lust and murder. Uh, What we're going to see is Jesus' simple meal is one of love, acceptance, welcome, generosity, compassion. And look down at verse 13. Look at what Jesus is doing. Uh, John the Baptist has just been murdered. And what happens? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat, privately, to a solitary or a deserted place. So what's happening? Jesus is tired. Jesus is in grief. Jesus needs a break. Jesus is weighed down. He hasn't stopped. And yet, notice the crowds just keep, just keep coming, don't they? And they're, they're getting bigger and bigger. Uh, this time, it's a crowd of 5,000 men. Uh, it's probably more like a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people, including women and children. And look at verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, I don't think he's got to the solitary place yet. I don't think he's rested yet. He has compassion on them and he healed them. So even when Jesus is trying to get a rest, he doesn't lose his heart of compassion. He meets genuine need. It's really something to notice about Jesus and that such is the heart of Jesus. Of course, he wants to care for himself. He's human just like us. But notice his self-care never descends into self-interest or self-centeredness. He never loses his compassion for people. And so evening approaches and what happens? The disciples realise, Jesus, I don't know whether you've noticed anything, but we've got a problem. We've got a huge problem on our hands Look at verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Did you notice the disciples' answer to the problem? Send them away. Send them away to buy food. it feels a little bit like the emergency plan of our family. Go down to Chico's and buy yourself a meal deal. That will fix it. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? But Jesus has a very different idea. Uh, even before you read verse 16 and hear Jesus' answer, what, what do you want to say to the disciples? Because you know more, because you've been reading Matthew's Gospel. Don't you want to say to the disciples... Do you realise who's with you? Remember who Jesus is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is in your midst. He's standing right there before you. He's the Son of God. He's the Saviour. The healer, the provider, is right there with you. The one who keeps showing you again and again and again that anything is possible. The one who's willing the one who's completely capable to meet every need, is right next to you. How can you say, go and buy some food? Well, Jesus, Jesus actually takes it a step further, doesn't he? He says, 
actually, disciples, you can do it. Why don't you provide food for them? You are my disciples and you can do this. Look at what he says, verse 16. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. It's, it's similar in the uh, story of Peter, isn't it? Going out in the water. Peter, come, trust me, I'm with you. Have courage, I am strong, I am with you. But the disciples are just like us, aren't they? They doubt it's possible. And so they're frantically, presumably going through the crowd, trying to work out what are we going to do. They come up with five loaves and two fish. Uh, It's really interesting. John's Gospel tells us they actually grab a young boy's lunchbox. (laughs) A young boy, maybe his mum has packed the family lunch, five loaves, two fish. The boy's carrying it and the disciples grab it. And the disciples think, if this is all we've got, how are we possibly going to feed 20,000 people? It's not going to happen. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, bring it here. I don't know what tone you read that with. (laughs) Is it, bring it here. I'm just so frustrated. Or is it compassionately, bring it here. Verse uh, verse, Verse 19. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus does it. It's done. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is unlike any other king. He can actually do it. Uh, More than that, do you notice he uses his power not to serve himself, but to serve the genuine needs of others. What a great king. Isn't that the king that you want to live for? It's one of those how good is Jesus moments, isn't it? That's amazing. Yes, but it's so kind, so gracious. He's a good and compassionate host. There's no one better. It's actually that moment where you go, yep, Jesus is the one I want to follow. Jesus is worth following. Worth following. The disciples should trust him. We should trust him. Millions of people have trusted him because he's a good and compassionate host. He's the king worth following. He's generous. He provides for the needs of his people. Now, it is worth just pausing for a moment to think about miracles. We've just come across two massive miracles in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And often miracles uh, trip people up. Maybe you're still wrestling with miracles. Uh, what do you do with the miracles in the biography of Jesus? Uh, how can miracles be a credible part of the historical document uh, that is Matthew's Gospel? Now, I reckon it's a really important question because if the miracles didn't happen, then all of what I just said about Jesus is not true. And Jesus is far less of a person. And actually, we could say we don't actually know the real Jesus. Uh, We take a little bit further. If these miracles aren't true, I assume the resurrection of Jesus is not true, the ultimate miracle. That has massive consequences. The Apostle Paul says, uh, you are in a hopeless state. All of Christianity comes crumbling down if the resurrection never actually happened. 
It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. Remember C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia series? He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Uh, If true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If the miracles are true, if Jesus really is the Son of God, that changes everything. If he's just a good teacher, then... It is of no consequence. Well, there's lots of ways that uh, people have understood the miracles down the ages. It's really interesting to note our scepticism on the miracles is actually a fairly modern phenomenon. It's only happened in the last couple of hundred years. In fact, the further you go back, the closer you get to the eyewitnesses, uh, scepticism almost disappears. Uh, For the first century eyewitnesses, even Jesus' opponents included, they didn't deny the miracles. They were never arguing whether the miracles were true or not or whether they actually happened. They clearly happened. They argued, is this from God or is this from the devil? They debated who is Jesus given what we've seen so clearly in the life of Jesus over three years. Uh, By the last few hundred years, one explanation is liberalism. Uh, That is that there actually is other explanations for the miracles. You can actually explain the miracles quite clearly by using another explanation. Um, So I learnt this week that uh, scholars with this particular passage would say, this is a miracle, but it's the miracle of people sharing. And what a a massive miracle it is. 15 to 20,000 people shared their food. They had only five loaves and two fishes, and they each took a nibble, each took a tiny part of that meal and shared it around and isn't that wonderful and also isn't that ridiculous (laughs) Uh, another option is you throw the miracles out completely you actually say no no it's there for the weak and the gullible Um, Jesus can't walk on water because that violates the laws of nature Uh, he can't walk on water because gravity and the science tells us that the density of the water doesn't allow it so it can't happen It just cannot happen. The laws of physics don't allow it. They are the laws, unchangeable. And so it actually takes you even further than that. Not only did this not happen, but no miracle is possible anytime at any place because the laws of nature are fixed. In fact, some people would say that we actually know the laws of nature so well now that don't tell me anything is is an act of God. Uh, Some people have the view that if you can't explain it, it must be from God. If you can explain it, then it's not from God. Well, we're we're able to explain more and more and more now to the point where God is not necessary, is he, to explain our world? It's not just that miracles don't exist, God doesn't exist. But it's a misunderstanding of science and it's a misunderstanding of God. See, science is actually a very Christian activity. Uh, how, how do we actually do science? What is science? Science is us exploring God's orderly world, a world that is designed, a world that is predictable, a world that you can test and work out the rules of how things work, uh, a world that God made, a world that God sustains that way. That is, everything doesn't just happen by the laws of nature. God is making it happen 
in a very orderly, predictable way uh, because God is behind everything. He's the sustainer of the universe. He makes everything happen, every second, every breath, every heartbeat, every atom in its right place. So the world is a predictable, livable place. And what are the laws of nature? The laws of nature are our attempt to describe what God is doing, how God has made the world and how he keeps sustaining the world in an orderly and sustained fashion. It actually makes the world very livable, doesn't it? Can you imagine if the, um, the law of gravity just randomly kept changing? It's actually very helpful to know that if you hold something in your hand and you let it go, it will drop to the floor like the glass I just broke uh, down here. It will drop to the ground every single time. So it's good to be prepared for that. It will drop to the ground every time except when you catch it. There are actually exceptions. See, God can make exceptions to the laws of nature. That the laws of nature are what God does most of the time by his power. But occasionally, God can change things up. God doesn't have to use the laws of nature that he made and designed for our good living. He can change it so that it looks different for a moment. It certainly gets our attention, doesn't it? It certainly tells us that don't think you're so clever, you can't explain everything... In fact, if you know that that there's order there, know that I can change it. He can do that. And so miracles are only impossible if you believe that the laws of nature are unbreakable, are fixed with no exceptions. Miracles are only impossible if you think that science explains all of life. And of course, as independent human beings, we... We like that explanation, don't we? I'm in control. I know exactly what's going on. I can explain it all. And it's even more uh, profound than that, isn't it? If I can explain it all, if, if the natural laws of God aren't the work of God, then there is no God and I'm not answerable to anyone. I like that answer. That's attractive. I can live how I want. I can enjoy it. I don't have to have God. A guy by the name of Peter Hitchens, you might recognise his surname, he's, he was once an atheist, he grew up in an atheist family, uh, he's now a Christian, he's the, he's the brother of the most famous atheist of our time, the late Christ, Christopher Hitchens. I don't know whether you've heard of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, uh, exploring theories and philosophies in life, uh, not very Christian most of the time, pretty anti-Christian actually. But Peter Hitchens turns up to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and he gets asked this question. What's the most dangerous idea in the whole of the world? And this is what he says. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. That is the most controversial thing you can say. That is the most dangerous idea in the world. That is the thing that changes everything. If there's more to life than what I can explain with science, if Jesus actually entered our world and demonstrate that he is the one who sustains everything, who made the laws of nature and can change the laws of nature at will, if there is a creator, that makes a huge difference. All of a sudden, 
there is a God. I am designed by him. I am made for him. I'm accountable to him. And so Jesus' miracles point us to the Son of God. Uh, Christians aren't anti-science. We're actually pro-science. God's orderly world enables science. Science is not the, the totality of understanding the world. It's very helpful. God is in control. God is in control and it sustains when he's using the laws of nature and when he chooses not to use them in miracles. Well, let me give you the second thing this morning. And the second thing is, what we see here, Jesus can do a lot with a little. I don't know whether you noticed another contrast here between this time between Jesus and not Herod, but Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Do you notice the disciples are focused on the impossible? Uh, They're they're focused on, wow, there's a massive need and we don't have. Jesus is the opposite, isn't it? Of course Jesus sees the huge need, but he focuses on what they do have. It's like Jesus saying to them, I know you're only human. I know you're afraid. I know you're weak. But I am the son of God. You're with me. I'm not afraid. I am strong. Trust me. I know you don't have much to offer. I know there's lots of people here. Can you stick with me? Can you trust me? We're going to do this. You can do great things in my name. Jesus really can do a lot with a little. I reckon I feel this every time I do anything for Jesus. I don't know how you think, if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't know how you feel about this, but any time I step out and try and do anything, every time I come up and speak, every time, it's surely only Jesus that can do something with this. I feel weak. I feel a sinner. I feel humbled. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus can do a lot with a little. I feel like I've got nothing to offer. Jesus has got everything to offer. I don't feel skilled enough. I don't feel gifted enough. I feel like the need is massive, but Jesus is greater. And if that's you too, just know that's exactly the person that Jesus wants to use. Because what is the alternative to that? Jesus, just just step aside for a minute. I've got this covered. (laughs) I'm gifted. I'm great. I can change things. That's not going to work with Jesus, is it? Jesus is the king who says, you are weak, you are little, I am great, and we will do great things. And so you might feel that about lots of things in life. You might feel that about telling someone about Jesus. You might think to yourself, how can I possibly explain Jesus and eternal life to someone? Um, I don't know enough. I, don't, I can't answer every question. And surely Jesus is saying to you, you know the gospel. You know that I love you. You know that I died for you. That's radically changed your life. Why don't you tell them about that? Why don't you invite someone to come and hear and experience Jesus? Why don't you, can you welcome someone? I can do a lot with that. Um, Sometimes we think it's all just for the experts. Um, I don't know where this quote comes from, but it's it's a quote about evangelism, and it says, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that sums it up, doesn't it? 
You don't need to be an expert. You're a beggar, I'm a beggar, and we're helping other beggars find Jesus. And maybe, um, maybe you think this way about your own money as well. You think to yourself, what would my money do? I don't have a lot. Or maybe I do have a lot, but gee, the need is massive. Um, even last week I spoke about us raising $50,000 towards our next-gen work over the next three years, but, but raising that now so that we get a head start on that. And you think to yourself, wow, that's a lot of money. What would, what would my small contribution make? And I think it's the same thing, isn't it? Jesus saying, bring it to me. I can do great things, even with the smallest of things. Uh, giving the gospel ministry is a massively multiplying uh, investment. It's actually hard to think of something that brings bigger returns, isn't it? One person becomes a disciple. Here at Salt, they tell someone else, they become a leader, they share it with others. One child becomes a disciple, there's a lifetime of making disciples. It's huge. Jesus says, bring it to me, I can do great things. Maybe you feel that way about becoming a leader. Uh, maybe, uh, and leadership's not for, for all of us, but maybe you've been asked to become a leader by, by a pastor here at Salt and you think to yourself, I just can't do it. I don't feel confident. Um, What is Jesus saying? Maybe you could lead a team. Could you lead a team of three people or four people? Are you the kind of person that's good at administration? Can you organise other people? Can you help organise disciple-making work? Can you you cook a meal? Can Can you welcome someone new? That's not a small thing. Can you help someone connect in as a member, a new member here at Salt? Could you give a few hours to the work of making disciples here at Salt? Could you give half a day? Could you give a whole day? Could you, could you give two days? It's all so important. It's all... You might think it's a small thing. Jesus says, I can do lots with small things. Bring your gift to me, Jesus, and I can do great things. I reckon that's just the the nature of the family business we're in, isn't it? The kingdom work, the disciple-making work with Jesus, who can do a lot with a little. Let me give you the third point this morning. Jesus' meal here is the only meal that truly satisfies. It's the only meal that truly satisfies. Uh, There's a whole lot going on here in this passage that should remind us that this is more than just Jesus feeding people on the day. I don't know whether you noticed it, Um, there is Jesus standing up in a deserted place. There's 12 basketfuls left over. There's a whole uh, massive crowd of hungry people who've turned into satisfied people. It reminds you of Moses in the desert, doesn't it? God feeding his people, manna and quail. Again, a generous God. But look at verse 19. When Jesus directs the people to sit down on the grass... He takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven and he gives thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave it to the disciples. What does that remind you of? When does Jesus break bread, give thanks, give it to his disciples? He's pushing us forward, isn't he? Turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Have a look at Matthew chapter 26 and you'll see where Jesus is heading with this. Jesus is preparing a meal in Matthew 26 to 
explain his death, uh, a meal that we have here at Salt and we'll be having soon, uh, not today though, to remember Jesus' death. Now look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And what's this Passover about? What's the symbolism about? Have a look uh, down in verse 26. Then Judas, sorry, uh, Jesus answered, you have said so. But then while, you were, while they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 14 is an amazing miracle. It's an amazing meal. But people went hungry, yeah? Here is the meal that Jesus is heading for. Here is the meal that truly satisfies. This is the meal that points to Jesus' death and new life in him. How does it satisfy? How does this meal satisfy? It has to do with the cross. So at the cross, two things. Firstly, at the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. So you can be satisfied that God is satisfied in Jesus. His anger has been dealt with. Your sins have been dealt with. The penalty has been paid. It's all done. You can rest easy. You can be satisfied in him. And so that's massive, isn't it? If you're weighed down by sin, if you feel, I am a sinner, remember the cross, remember the meal that points to the cross, your sin has been dealt with, you can have forgiveness of sins, trust in Jesus, you are forgiven, be satisfied that God is satisfied in Jesus. And can I say too, if you've never done that, if you've never come to Jesus to ask him to forgive you, come. Come today and ask him to forgive you. Jesus satisfied God's anger. But secondly, because of Jesus, because of Jesus' death, what do we now feed on? It's more than food. It's the promises of God. Now we know that food is essential for life. Good, healthy, nutritious food, I'm told, is what sustains us. But Jesus, with Jesus, there is food for the soul. There is God's word that speaks into our hearts and lives. See, that's what God's word does. It, it comforts us, it guides us, it directs us. It seeps down and gives us hope in the depths of our hearts. What does God's word do? It speaks to our fears, our failures, our future. Very, very helpful, particularly if you're going through a difficult time. And maybe even now that's you. What did Jesus say even in Matthew's Gospel? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's actually the word of God that truly satisfies deep within you. So you think about the promises of God. To know that you are loved beyond all measure. To know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans chapter 8. To know that God is working in all of 
every part of your life to make you more like Jesus for your good. To know that your work for the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15, is not in vain. To know that Jesus has wiped your sins out completely. That he's conquered death and that you will conquer death. That one day you'll be with him. There's the food, the rich, nutritious food that we need to feed on. Feed on what God says. Um, even if even people who are not yet Christian would say, what you listen to really matters. What you listen to changes your mind, which changes your heart, which changes your life. What we take in, what we believe, what we act on is really, really important. It's really important for life. Uh, why would you live on the junk food of the world's messaging? Watch out for that. When you can feast on God's good and satisfying word. Feed. Feed on God. Feed on his word. I'm going to pray for us now, but let, let me finish with these words. Jesus, what have you seen? Jesus' meal, the only meal that really, really satisfies. So I want to ask you this morning, are you part of that meal? Are you part of Jesus and his meal? The one that really satisfies. Jesus can do a lot with a little. Are you part of Jesus' disciple-making work? Have you given him uh, your gifts, your time, so that he might do a lot? And Jesus is the good and compassionate host. He's the king worth living for. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king, gracious and holy, compassionate, the one who truly feeds our soul with your word. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder of Jesus, the good and compassionate king and host, the one who provides for genuine need. Father, thank you that you can do a lot with a little. Father, please help us to see our part in Jesus' disciple-making work. Help us to keep living for this King who's worth living for. Help us to take part again in this meal and this life that you've made in Jesus' death. And we pray it in his name. Amen.